Hello and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast from the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Rose and I'm here with today's guest, Edward Martin, a PhD student in the Barker Lab here at Edinburgh, whose research investigates the use of sound to represent protein sequence data. Hi Eddie and thank you for joining us today. Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. So, first of all, I'm aware you used to be part of the Biopod team, so this must be familiar ground for you. Yes, although I, I rarely did the actual interviewing. Uh, I was never trusted to be in front of the mic, but I did a bit, <laughs> I did a bit of the editing, okay. uh, helped record some interviews, um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and it's, you know, I, I learned loads, and I was really happy to be involved. Yeah, well, this is my first interview, so I think I've still got quite a lot to learn as well. Um, so please could you start by telling us briefly about yourself and your research? Yes, so I'm Eddie Martin. Um, I am now into my third year of a PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I'm in the Institute of Evolutionary Biology in the School of Biological Sciences, hence Biopod. That's about myself. I'm from Leeds in England. So I, uh, I'm sort of principally a computer scientist, I guess. I work using computers uh, to find new ways of representing data. So what I'm really interested in is how we can get researchers and how we can get data and how we can connect those two and allow the researchers to use their intuition to understand these data sets. Um, And the way I do that is through sound. Okay. So typically my idea of what I research is how can we turn these complicated data sets into sound Uh, analogous to the way you'd create a a graph visually but using sound so that people can use their psychoacoustics so this is the way that the brain processes sound which is in a completely different way to how it processes visual information and we use that kind of intuition to allow researchers to understand their data. Right that's really interesting so we're going to be focusing mainly on a paper that you published recently which where you used algorithms to turn protein sequence data into sound um, and it's a really impressive paper and we'll link it in the description so that any of our listeners who would like to read it for themselves can find it. Um, so I think we should start with could you briefly explain what a protein sequence is and why we need to know the sequence of a protein? Yeah okay well firstly I mean thank you for your kind words <laughs> for, uh, no, no one, you never know anyone's read it when it's online you know it's nice nice to hear some kind words. Um, So uh, what is the sequence of a protein and why do we need to know it? How do we find it out? So proteins, uh, everything, I'm I'm also, I will attest to not being an expert in biology in the way that most of our listeners probably are. But the way I would describe it sort of to my parents or to some of my friends is basically almost everything in your body is made of proteins. So like uh, proteins are these kind of like natural building blocks Uh, every single one of them has a different three-dimensional shape which allows it to interact with the world in a different way Um, and that's that's fundamentally what all organisms are made out of Um, the the three-dimensional shape of proteins which is so important to their function so the shape influences the function is defined by what they're made of and so what they're made of is like a a link of uh, chains if you can imagine like a chain link you know a single (laughs) A long link of chains. Oh, a chain of links. And each one of those links can be made of one of 20 amino acids. And the order in which those amino acids are put in and which amino acids are there will define this three-dimensional structure. So really then what we do is we create a kind of abstraction. We stop thinking about 
the three-dimensional structure of a protein, or we think about that less, we can then simplify that to just being about the, the list of amino acids that are included. So this might be as short as 10 or 20 amino acids, or it might be as long as hundreds or getting close to thousands um, of amino acids. And by looking at the order and which amino acids are linked in this chain, which we typically represent using like capital letters to and talk about as if it's a language, um, we can then, you know, we can then analyze that to try and learn things about the three-dimensional structure or what what's going on with proteins. Um, the typical way that we get protein sequences, there's big databases online with like millions of protein sequences. About five percent of those have been. Uh, protein sequence where someone has taken the time to go and check in order which amino acids make up the protein but the other 95% is inferred uh, computationally where we know DNA sequences and the DNA maps onto the proteins um, as everyone learns hundreds of thousands of times by processes of translation um, so yeah most actually most of the protein data sets we have haven't actually been measured but they've been inferred computationally and hopefully that kind of captures it yeah no that was really clear that was yeah. a really good description um so we have these protein sequences and they're stored online but how are they visualized currently so there's, there's like a few ways of visualizing them um, and then there's the question of whether you're talking about one protein sequence or lots of protein sequences um, but the simplest way that we visualize protein sequence is we reduce it to its amino acids. So this is these 20 letters, we can call them, but they're amino acids. And then we put them in order because they're in order in that chain link. And we write them out as one big word of possibly, you know, 200, say, right. letters long. And that is the simplest visualization. And now we can kind of both, everyone can imagine, if you're looking at one word made of seemingly random alphabet letters that's 200 letters long trying to understand anything from that is it's a nightmare right yeah. our brains don't function in a way that we can recognize those patterns and like yes we can learn to read but we spend years learning to read to be able to like take meaning from that kind of that kind of data set the then second thing that people do is they then will add on to that uh, colorations so you will maybe um, pick all of the all of the amino acids that have a certain I don't know, hydrophobicity, um, which is to do with how they interact with water, or polarity, which is to do with like electricity. Um, and you could add colours onto that. So then what you would then have is these letters, which are then have like coloured blocks around them, or the letters themselves are coloured. And again, that represents more information. We can understand more, although obviously not always ideal for people who are visually impaired or colourblind, but um, this is another way of adding on more information. Um, and then if you then wanted to, there's there's also three-dimensional um, protein visualizations where people sort of render them as three-dimensional explorable objects to look at those three-dimensional structures, um, which I guess is the other way of visualizing it. Um, but my work really is like looking at this this sort of like flat view. So when you're looking at these letters, possibly colored, and then also if you're comparing lots of proteins, imagine rather than that being like one 200 letter word, you then have like 20 or 5, 10, 20, 50 of those. And then all of those being coloured to try and represent their like polarity or their hydrophobicity. And I guess what I'm trying to get across is that this obviously works and does lots of good things. There's lots of ways in which those data sets become very chaotic or very hard to understand um, visually. 
and also talking about a, a protein of length 200 that's that's well beyond what you can fit on a single computer screen yeah. so again then you're having to navigate with that and so you're starting to hit some of these kind of problems of visualization which again people do successfully do research in series you know these aren't complete roadblocks but um i think that they're maybe preventing certain levels of intuition being accessible to people and also make it harder to share the data to share the data with others um yeah i think i think i might have lost my train of thought but i think i've, I've got across really that's what visualizations of proteins look like and maybe that's some of the problems that they're starting to come up against and yeah. i guess the other one would be um, if you're putting a colour scheme on them, you can only put so many colour schemes on at once because what if you want to represent it's hydrophobic and it's positively charged? Right, yeah. You know? And yeah. then and then actually where how do you fit like a two a two two dimensional colour scale onto these uh letters? And then uh and then there's there's lots of other aspects of the protein you might also want to be representing. And then again, that's hard, you're going to have to add maybe even a level of interactivity to those visualizations and you know again these things do work but maybe they could be improved you know yeah i guess you have the problem with um using color for people who might be colorblind yes as well yeah um, so i think again uh, about one in 20 people are yeah. colorblind um and far more men than women i think but still yeah still and and that happens a lot and i, I know i know i know some scientists researchers in our department who are colorblind and i've asked them about what do they do when when faced with these and they say generally i just have to try really hard to work out what the data is saying right. and try and work out if there's a very slight change in hue and you know this is obviously something that they work through and these are like you know successful talented individuals who are able to deal with this but what if it wasn't so difficult for them yeah you know? yeah yeah so as an alternative you have used sound is that correct yes as an alternative way to convey this protein data yeah so that's that's my alternative well that's the alternative that i've been working on that's what this paper looks at is how can we represent protein these protein data sets using sound so um and in the kind of simplest form in the, in the way that really presented in the paper that is creating a a little song we'll call it a little track um representing an individual protein and you press play and you can hear it played in order um and that's the kind of simpler version and then <laughs> obviously the paper then gets more ambitious and tries to work with multiple sequences and trying to represent several at once um, which is obviously a much larger problem to tackle but probably has much more use um, but it's a lot more difficult yeah um, yeah but that's that's the that's the idea maybe now would be a good time to listen to one of those sounds yeah so we're going to listen to we're going to listen to this is a human major prion protein um, so this is this is a protein that's found in all humans um, it's not especially long um, and I guess the interesting thing that you can hear from this is that there is a tandem repeat in there um, so there's a there's an area of the of um, maybe about eight amino acids that's repeated four or five times with slight variations and and this is the kind of thing that sound is actually really good for recognizing being able to hear these kind of patterns so listen to the prime protein um, being played I hope you enjoy it maybe see if you can hear the, the repeated pattern and then that, that tells you where there's a, a structure, a domain existing within the protein which would create a three-dimensional structure and that's kind of magic that you should be able to hear that, so enjoy.
was really nice. It sounded very pleasing to the ear. Is that something that you aimed for? Yeah. When designing your sounds? Yes. Um, so the sound design of sonification, so this is what we call the whole approach, is like we call an individual thing a sonification and the whole process of turning data sound is sonification. Um, the, trying to make sonifications and the sound design for it is a massive thing in the field because the people who do obviously people who do sonification really they really love sound you know they love making sounds and they love these like processes of synthesis for making sounds and it's quite hotly debated and I guess one of the main things I'm I'm very much in the camp of making the sound design like good enough for the purpose um, so you could spend a lot more time making something that would sound maybe more beautiful and more kind of wondrous but also uh, I there's then trade-offs with how much information can you get through, what if people are listening to it on bad speakers. These are all kind of big trade-offs in the sound design. So with this I tried to go really simple, so this is just using a simple, they call it a sign synthesizer, this is like basic settings kind of thing. But you're right, it has this like a nice kind of neutral sort of vibe to it, it sounds very clean, I tried to keep it sounding almost like scientific, because I was aware that in the paper some of the proteins that I'm using are often linked to diseases, and so I didn't want to be, I wanted to treat those with some level of kind of sincerity in the sound design, so I didn't want it to sound like uh, silly or camp or daft, because I know that some people reading, there's always a chance that someone reading it is, you know, these are, in some senses, biomedical research. So I was trying to be kind of serious with that, because in the past I've like performed pieces based on like the Huntington's disease and the proteins around Huntington's disease. Right. And obviously if you're performing that to a crowd, then you have to be quite sensitive because that's obviously like a, a devastating illness. Yeah. So in the sound design, being kind of very careful mm -hmm. with that is another side of it. I could probably talk for hours about the sound design of these, but I'm generally just to do it so it's like good enough. And I did also, the sound design on that was done on a Raspberry Pi computer. So all of the sound made on here was done on a Raspberry Pi um, because we were also trying to show that you could do sonification easily and cheaply and you didn't need like big loads of software so that was another thing is that all the code on this and all the synthesis was done yeah on like the tiny little computer so again all the stuff in this paper can be done really cheaply and easily and accessibly uh, using open source software right so that was like kind of another nice side to it yeah it makes it really accessible yeah um so maybe you could tell us a bit about how you go about writing algorithms <laughs> yeah. or is that a bit too complicated god yeah so algorithms they're um it's a magical world, right? word, right? Algorithm. I, I know it, it comes from the, uh, it comes from the name of an academic from like the Middle East in the like pre-Renaissance time. I forget his name, but it sounds like algorithm. <laughs> right. but that's why it's like al, you know, like yeah. Islamic, unique, definitional word. Um, so they sound magic, and like people are always like very opaque on like what algorithms do. So it's a lot easier to say the algorithm does this, right? The algorithms that that I'm writing to make this code are like 30 lines long they're very simple they're very simple kind of like data processing things like you take a letter you move it to a MIDI number which is a way of representing a pitch you then send the MIDI number to a synthesizer that can turn a number into a sound and it plays a sound so there's a lot of the a lot of the design is like which number <laughs> you know which number is which amino acid going to so we call that a mapping um, and that's that's where you're doing a lot of the design and like you're trying to work out how people will perceive it and so that's where a lot of the skill comes in in designing like what aspects of sound so pitch, uh, loudness, timbre, 
roughness. There's all these things that you can make sound do, and like in you know different instruments, what will match to which bits of the data, and you do that as a design process. But that's you're doing that yourself. You know the, the algorithms themselves aren't very complicated. And I guess I don't know. Maybe I should just state what I, how I would describe an algorithm to demystify them. They're um, they're recipes, right? That that is that is what an algorithm is, and we use it. We use the like the social context in which we use the phrase algorithm and recipe. Um, well, we use algorithm when you're trying to impress people or when you're using a computer, right? But it is just exactly the same as a recipe. So your algorithm is just you you write in a way that the computer understands a recipe for it to do a certain series of things. So you know. Um, uh, and that's that's all they are. And so in like all of my time doing computer science, that's that's all all algorithms are is just these recipes. And there's sort of like nothing mystifying or complicated about them, um, apart from maybe how long it takes you to get the specific instructions <laughs> by constantly googling and going on Stack Overflow. Um, but yeah. Yeah. No, that's very clear. I yeah. mean, to so- for me, I don't have really any experience in computer science, but that has made it very clear. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and do you, like you could you could say like you know in, in like a wet lab experiment you design your like methods of what you're going to do right. and you would write them out. That's an algorithm, you know. It's yeah. just it's the same instructions. It's just the instructions, rather than being read by you and then performed by your hands, they're read by a computer interpreter and performed by a processing unit. Yeah. But it's still the same thing of like you give instructions in a format that they can be interpreted. And I, I write my algorithms very much like that. And I, I put a lot of like plain text for like humans to be able to read that says, this is doing this thing, this is doing this thing, this is the input, this is the output. So it's again, like I like, I like my algorithms to be narrative, right? So that they sort of make sense as you're reading it through. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of people, what they like to do is make their code as short as possible. So that it like, sort of looks sexy, do you know what I mean? It looks kind of like technical. Yeah. And if like someone looked at it, Especially if someone who was a nerd looked at it, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, Ooh, I'm very, very clever with that." I like mine to go like very much like each line almost to to read through and be very clear for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, which it just makes it kind of easier for me to catch up when I inevitably forget what I've done. Because <laughs> most yeah, because yeah, most of the time when you're writing an algorithm, you're probably the person who's going to read it the most. You yeah. Know? So like occasionally someone else will use it or adapt it. I was going to say it makes it reproducible for someone else then, right? Yeah. Which is important yeah. in science. Yeah, and I, and I like that. I like that, and it's something I love about computer science is that the culture of computer science is, has been so open source for so long, and has only got more open source now. So. Whereas you used to have like private companies running software, um, you know, like uh, the statistical software R, right? Is um, it used to be called Q, and it was run by a company, and then gradually people just copied it, and then right. the company went out of business, and now it's free. You right. know, and, I, yeah. and then it's you know, um, I I love that kind of side of it, and I love that shareable thing. Like even like uh, your your Apple iPhone now, it's like fundamentally based on technology that's open source as are all Android phones, and like this wasn't the case 20 years ago for like Apple phones. Um, they weren't quite around 20 years ago, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's this there's this movement towards more kind of open sharing. source stuff and sharing yeah. and like, uh, there's something, there's something, yeah, really admirable about that and I really like that. Yeah, for sure. So now you've got these protein sequences and they're in sound, how do you test how successful this was? Ah, so this is um, this is a big question for my kind of research because if if what I do is I come up with a method that I think is a good way of representing data of sound, 
how do you then test whether it's worked? Um, and I, I've, I've thought of like trying to do challenge experiments where you would um, basically set people examinations and try and use your method to solve it, but then you'd have to sort of benchmark that against other methods. And then how do you, if your method's only six months old and has only had so much amount of thought into it, and then you're comparing it to a computational method or a life-learned skill, you know, these people are like very, very familiar with how do you compare those and what does it mean to compare those? Yeah. And also then, you know, is are you trying to develop sound things that are meant to be used standalone or are they meant to complement visual, you know, or, or already existing methods? Um, so ultimately the way my research has moved is to accept that, uh, accept people's expertise. So people who work in these areas accept that they know um, and to take that as um, understood and use um, this is getting a bit humanities but to use like a phenomenological approach where you're uh, essentially accepting that you can never know another person's experience Okay. so what you have to do is just ask them to share their experience because if when we're designing these kind of tools for like uh, knowledge extraction from data sets we just need to know if people using them think they're good really it sort of boils down to that yeah. very simply is that we can't know what's going on inside their minds so easily i don't know i'm sure there's a million ways of scanning them but that's not the approach we take so yeah so we have this phenomenological approach again these are long words and this is i did do half a philosophy undergrad so i was like sort of maybe more willing to engage with these things um but yeah we so, I mean, this is coming down to, I do, I do surveys and questionnaires, I ask people if they're good, I establish people, I find people who are a target audience, or I find people who would be using them, so for these kind of things, people who do bioinformatics, people with expertise in biology, and I get them to do some tasks, use, use the method, and then I ask them through survey questions and through focus groups, what do they think? is this good and and i'm trying to leverage their knowledge and their experience as a way of understanding what it is to use these methods um and that has been my research approach for this and it's a research approach that i'm still taking forward um which is it's it's a different approach to a lot of scientific work uh which doesn't often center experience but i try to be very transparent in that in my writing and my research and the, these are the methods that i use um and I think that's really because when you're talking about data visualization or data representation, we're really talking about moving from a data set to a brain, to a person, to an understanding, and then uh, trying to like crack open that black box is a really complicated thing to do. Yeah. Um, and trying to answer all the questions of like experience and phenomena, uh, yeah, they're very hard questions to ask. So I, I sort of sidetrack that by just asking people. And that I think that works well. You have yeah. to be, you have to be careful. You're not leading people, and you have to ask the right questions. And not often, you won't always get the data back that you want. And there's always going to be this qualification, like what if it doesn't work for someone else? And that's fine. But that's still, for me, infinitely better than doing no evaluation and just coming up with a method yourself and saying, "Grand." Yeah, have <laughs> fun with this. Yeah, <laughs> I hope this was good. Yeah. I made this method and didn't ask anyone if they liked it. Um, and there's ways in which this ties into like um, a lot of like computing research for like technology and software that exists. So like um, user testing and marketing, these market research. So these often come up 
when I'm looking for precedence and you know even just like phrases like focus groups when I say I'm running focus groups in a research context the books that I'm reading are for like professionals who are like you know doing focus groups about uh, products and brandings and things and it's this it's the same idea um, and so what what sort of seems like initially on the surface level like it's um, I don't know it would have seemed to me originally like something that doesn't have so much depth the more you sort of drill down into how you deal with these problems of understanding experience or qualifying it and measuring it I do sincerely think that this is this is a robust way to to find this out and obviously then it means I'm for always indebted to these people who are experts who are willing to give their time who are interested in these new ideas and give me these kind of like direct suggestions and feedback and and also these sessions are really lovely like you just you do just get to have serious conversations with really bright people and that's <laughs> that's also a really nice thing yeah. you know so did these people who you recruited have any uh, experience in music so uh, this is something I always ask um, and I'm sure to ask um, not really is the answer I'm doing some research now on something and I ended up advertising it via the music school as well so I've actually had people who do have a lot of expertise in music and very little expertise in biology um, and that's fun and it's fun to hear what their feedback's like um, and that's that's a whole different thing but yeah typically the people I'm asking don't have so much expertise in music right um, yeah. but it's, yeah it's something that wasn't even my eyes weren't even open to before even in this research I, I'd never even considered how different people's experience might affect the way they even perceive sound so like their like psychoacoustic perception of the world when I was asking these people in the focus group I had some from some from like northwest Europe some from southern Europe and some from like North America so there's like a range of people and the people from different areas had different perceptions of even like the polarity of the sound so whether they thought a high sound should represent a high value or a high sound should represent a low value right, okay. and you know uh, and the differences between them fundamentally their backgrounds are very similar but also they were from different areas of the world and yeah so even and they gave the exact opposite recommendation they were like no it should be this way around because of this and yeah there's, oh, that's really interesting. there's a lot going on there as well um, yeah I don't know that's it's just something interesting that arises in like what's complicated in our experiences and the way we all understand the world is different yeah and like is fundamentally different and these are the these are those those issues again that are lurking behind doing this kind of research that needs experience that is about people that's about connecting people with data and data sets so do you think that this is accessible for most people sorry what do you mean by accessible as in um, people who maybe don't have such a strong background in protein sequence like in proteins yeah so on the one hand it's like it's attractive it's fun people hear it and go like, oh that's cool oh I'd, I'd like to learn more about that in terms of if I'm gonna say oh here's a 1500 proteins let's sit and listen to them are you gonna learn anything I don't think it's for them and I think this method um, more so than maybe some of my other work is specifically targeted towards people who understand proteins okay, experts yeah so here like with the example that I showed you I can say like oh look for a repeated pattern you'll hear something that's something interesting but uh, there's still there's still a lot to learn there's still a huge amount of abstraction for like you know a layman to go we've, we're talking about proteins and we're talking about the things that make up proteins and their three-dimensional structure and then the patterns that determine these three-dimensional yeah. structures then we're going to recognize these patterns using sound 
there's still lots of steps of intuition there and so this is something that um, it's fun you can play it oh here's protein but I yeah I don't think in its current state this is something that people are going to really understand but it is something that people do immediately connect with that's something that I think is kind of magical about sonification as an approach is how is the enthusiasm it brings in other people so immediately when you're talking about it people want to talk to you about it you know um you know i i published this paper and within a few weeks i had like a, an australian podcast wanting to speak to me you know to put me on the radio in australia and like again like what was being presented there wasn't like a real in-depth like can we really understand proteins from this but it was like the kind of fun side of it yeah. it's like it's, it's i don't cool. know yeah, and yeah people are interested in it and i think that's i think that's actually really important it's something that i'm really i've become more and more aware of and is a big part of my research practice now is knowing that this there is enthusiasm in this people react well to it and something that um science often doesn't attract is enthusiasm or attracts enthusiasm in the wrong ways yeah and i think that's something to be harnessed and something very important about sonification is that if you can turn data sets or things that don't have a strong visual component things that aren't already attracting interest if you can connect them to people and get more people interested that can be really powerful and and that's not just like you know say to the public that um, a vaccine is a good idea that can be uh, speaking to a funder or speaking to you know someone who is going to support research in that way someone who like keeping that kind of positive feeling by going you know we're doing all of this and look you can hear this thing have that bit of wow factor that kind yeah. of pizzazz um, yeah and I think that's something that sonification really can do and that's yeah and uh, it's something I'm very interested in as well so what are your plans from here? Do you have any plans to change or improve uh, your project? So this, this project was principally done as my master's thesis. Okay. This work, obviously, like... Wow, uh, that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, thank you, but also there was a, a, lot, a lot of time was spent afterwards, like, um, you know, I didn't write the paper during that time, you know, that takes a lot of time and... Yeah, so, and it was done kind of very quickly. And then quickly you find all these things you wish you'd done. I think this is, mm-hmm. this happens with all research. Um, I've not, I've not been doing work on specifically this since. I've taken some similar approaches and done sonification of DNA. Okay. Which makes less melodic music because you have fewer notes, right? Right. But I've done, I've done pairwise alignment sonifications that are quite fun. Um, and I tried to make those really kind of beautiful I mean after doing this I that was when Covid hit and so then suddenly uh, straight after this I was doing concerts and doing like live performances and that was going really well and then when Covid hit we moved kind of inside so then I started going on to like video production and can you do like audio visual educational practices using this right um, so at the moment I'm doing some education research so can you teach biology and bioinformatics using audio only so you make a mini podcast you know five minutes can you teach polymerization through sound you know oh cool so i'm doing that kind of thing with it which is again using these kind of sound approaches for a a different approach a different thing um i want to come back to this this research because the bit of this which i i did and i just don't think worked very well was actually the multiple sequence alignment sonifications um and that's something which i feel like could be really really useful um, but within the scope of this project, I, I don't think it, yeah. it succeeded especially well. And our feedback, that was what we got. Right. You know, when we asked people and when we got these experts in to listen to them, you know, they said, like, 
this is like they couldn't understand things from that and that's not something that was like a real strength of the paper but it's clear that there is there is stuff to be done then um, I guess what I'm wanting to do is I want to try and apply sound to other large complicated visualizations in bioinformatics uh, and the big one for me at the moment is I'm interested in phylogenetic trees and can we sonify those okay which is like a really exciting idea yeah. um, obviously it involves me having to learn a lot more about phylogeny yeah which is quite complicated yeah it's rather complicated <laughs> yeah um, but you know that's something that I really love to do and then again and also then that is are you creating the sonification of any kind of network yeah. diagram so the possibility is endless then yeah, I guess this is the strange thing about working in something that's uh, it's niche, but it's also you're you're one of the earlier people taking the steps. Like there are other people who work in this area doing sonification right. of like bioinformatics data, but there's not loads of people, and it hasn't been being done for a really long period of time. So there's lots of these like big problems that you can try and concern yourself with, but <laughs> you know, trying to leverage your own time, and often you're like, you know, people. It's harder to maybe collaborate with other people because you're you're coming up with different research approaches that other people are doing so then you find you know you're the only person in your building doing qualitative research or the, or the only person who's using like sound and sound technology and having to gain those expertise yourselves so there's ways in which lots of those small battles are, are kind of hard won because there's not someone down the corridor doing the same thing to teach you and everyone has these issues in the research yeah, I've also got loads of things that I don't quite want to talk about because they, they probably they might not happen but if they do they're like really exciting Yeah. but I'm wanting, now things are getting back I want to get more to these like live in person performances like science related kind of wow factor events that I think like sonification really can do because like I guess sound is emotional <laughs> it like always is emotional yeah. and like there's you know, there's there's as much emotion in like hearing like a single like coin dropping in like an empty room. That's really an emotional sound, right? Um, and, and in almost anything, and you can like, I'm really interested in leaning on that on that those feelings, the emotions and the emotional responses of listeners using sound. And how can you do that with scientific stories? You know, how can you do that with like forgotten scientists, or or just you know, um, in the in the simplest way, it's like what's well, <laughs> the largest problem facing mankind is like climate change, right? And we've known about, we've all seen the graphs of increasing carbon in the atmosphere, right? And it hasn't changed behaviours. Yeah. Could sound have done a better job? <laughs> it would Possibly. be it would be incredibly ambitious for me to say yes, but you know, they're they're, they're questions that I think about anyway. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, so this might be a big question, but are you planning to stay in research? I mean, you've got a couple of years left of your PhD. Do you want to stay doing this kind of thing when you finish? Very, it's, it's very hard to answer, isn't it? It's like there's, there's so much about it that I love, you know, so much about it that I love, but researching is quite isolating, especially in the past couple of years. You can end up doing basically being alone in quite an odd, in, in a way that you never really expected to be while you're doing it. Um, I, I like doing this and I, I really enjoy I really enjoy research and I'd be really happy to stay in it. Yeah. Um, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of other kind of factors going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um I've got to do a professional placement as part of my PhD, so I'll be going for three months to go and work somewhere. Um and hopefully that that's something that would be like a nice kind of change of air, you know, after like a few years 
you know, like two and a half years, especially like two and a half years of like working at home on these kind of projects. Um, yeah. But yeah. Nice to try something out, something else out for a bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's that's it's a massive question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's so many possibilities. Once you've got a PhD as well, the doors will open for you. There's yeah. other things that you're interested in. Yeah, it's very true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got so much love for like sound and sound-based research. So it is, I mean, because this project was quite a unique mix of like computer science and music and biology. Where did that come from? How did you get into that area? So my supervisor actually advertised this project almost as is, right? So he's uh, he does outreach work. So this is Daniel Barker. He does outreach work. Um, doing bioinformatics in schools so he goes into secondary schools and takes a big arm full of raspberry pi computers and hands them out and then they design like lessons to engage to engage the students with like the the coding with coding through biology and i mean one of the side effects of this is that there's there's a gender imbalance in computer science but there's the reverse gender imbalance in the uk in biology so if you can use biology as a way to get like um you know like women into technology that's like a sort of that's like a positive thing so yeah. it's and also allowing that like school level biology not to be like missed out um, because bioinformatics is such and like the computer side of it is such a big part of biology so they do these outreach things and they do them using raspberry pi computers and during one of these sessions they'd, they'd come up with the idea of like turning a little game where you kind of turn dna into sound and they were using sonic pi which is actually the software i used in my paper so I've moved on from using that now, but that's a really brilliant like synthesizer software where you do like it's almost like coding on a command line prompt, almost. But and you code, but you code to make music, so you can say like you know, play a boop every zero point one <laughs> seconds, and it'll go boop 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 boop. Right. But then you can put in drum samples, and you can make really good music, and it's teaching code as well. So it's like a fun way to get people into code. So they were using the Sonic Pi as a way to teach coding, and also tied in with bioinformatics. So they're like, oh. Why don't you turn some, get some DNA data and then we'll turn that into music. And then he was doing this as a teaching thing. And then, then obviously he's a, an experienced researcher. The question so then actually, could we learn much more from this? What can, what, by turning this into sound, what can we learn from it? And so then he, yeah, then he advertised it as a PhD. I saw it and thought that's right up my street <laughs> while I was doing, I was doing a master's in artificial intelligence and I saw that and I thought I really fancy that actually so otherwise I might not have done a PhD I yeah. wasn't I wasn't going I wasn't looking around I saw this one and applied for it I didn't apply for any others I didn't have plans to apply for another really if I didn't get this um so yeah serendipity yeah it was meant to be yeah yeah oh that's really nice um so I think that is all we've got time for today thank you so much for your time Eddie and for sharing your expertise on a really interesting um, and unique area of biology. Um, so thank you to our listeners uh, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Bye everyone. Bye.